So we're talking about my generation. We're talking about kind of um, this young adult population, uh, 18 to 35-year-olds. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint with broad brush strokes. Uh, people don't fit into, always fit into the holes that we try to fit them into. So uh, these are generalizations that I'm making. It might be, you might be somebody who's in your 18 to 35-year-old age range and say, that's not me, and that's fine. You might be somebody who is older than that, and you might say, wow, that's totally me, and that's fine. People are individuals, and we are that way because we are that way, but that's what, that's my presupposition as we start. And it's something that means a lot to me. It means a lot to me because that's who I am. That's who I've been. That's, that's who I was when I began this walk in faith. I mean, I had started the walk much earlier than that, but it really wasn't uh, anything that meant anything to me uh, in my heart. So this is something, and I apologize beforehand, but it's something I'm passionate about. This is something that keeps me up at night. It keeps me up at night because there are people, dear friends of mine, that, that just don't know. They just don't know. Growing up, I was... Um, well, my wife and I have been asking my parents quite often. We're, we're expecting a baby in four weeks. Um, that's coming fast. <laughs> I'm realizing I'm not prepared. <laughs> Last week, I, was, I gave this message at North Branch, and I said, How do you, you know, I'm as prepared as I could be. This week, I started realizing, no, I'm not prepared at all. But it's going to happen in four weeks, and we're excited about it. And as we've been ex- you know, making this way to become parents, we've been asking our families a lot what we were like as babies, what we were like as children, maybe so we can prepare ourselves. And I, I, I really hope our child takes after my wife. I, I hope he has her demeanor <laughs> be a little easier to rein in, so to speak. We asked my parents just a couple weeks ago, we were visiting them, and I asked my mom and dad, I said, what was I like as a baby? What was I like as a kid? And my dad said, wow, you... I mean, you're like a storm. <laughs> you're always moving. You're always doing something. He said, but it was good because you always had a smile on your face. You were always causing trouble, but it was good trouble. He said, Jeremy, every day you woke up, you woke up smiling. And I think part of the reason that I woke up smiling all the time is because my demeanor growing up and oftentimes my demeanor now is, that's all going to work out okay in the end anyways. It's okay laid back, not taking anything too seriously. But as my dad, that scared him to death because as I grew up, he wanted me to know what I was going to do and who I was going to be. He is a process person. He has a plan for everything. And as he looked at my demeanor, his question would always be, well, well, well Jeremy, what are you going to do with your life? And I would say, well, well I don't know. So it got to the point where I got ready to go to college, and as I went to college, everybody started to declare their major. So my dad asked me, Jeremy, what are you going to major in? I don't know. He said, well, you should probably think of a major. And I looked at all my friends. I looked at my brother, who's seven years older than me, and all, have, all of them were business majors. So I thought, ah, I'll be a business major. So I went to college my freshman year. I went into the registrar's off, office, and I said, I'm declaring my major. I'm declaring I'm going to be a business major. Okay, that sounds good. Here's the classes you should take. One of the first classes they had me take was an accounting class. I didn't know what that was. My first friend at college was a guy by the name of Jeff Jens. He lived across the hall from me. 
Jeff and I were in the same accounting class. Jeff was a business major as well. We were in our first accounting class. We were sitting in the very back. That was my choice. We were sitting in the very back, and as Dr. Foss started giving us our introductory, introduction um, lecture on accounting, I started laughing to myself. This guy had no clue what he was talking about. He was talking about debits and credits, and I'm like, you're supposed to be my professor, and you don't even know how to pronounce the word debt. And so I started laughing, and my friend Jeff said, what are you laughing about? And I said, dude, the guy doesn't even know how to say the word debt. He's like, no, it's a debit. And I said, no, Jeff, you don't pronounce the B. You might be from Montana, but you've heard that you don't pronounce the B. And he said, no, Jeremy, you know what a debit is, don't you? I said, yeah, it's when you don't have enough money to pay your bills. It's called a debt, but you don't pronounce the B. (laughs) By the grace of Jeff Jens, I made it through that class. It was my lowest grade in college. It was a C minus. My second lowest grade in college was a C, and that was in religion. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Shouldn't admit that. So I realized that I wasn't going to be a business major. And I realized that I wanted to work with young people. There were people in my life, there were people in my life while I was growing up that took a significant interest in who I was as a person. They invested in me in ways that I did not deserve. They invested in, and they, they cared about who I was. My brother and a couple of his friends, a couple of my coaches, a couple teachers, a youth director, they poured their life into me. They looked out for me and I realized that that's what I wanted to do no matter what for the rest of my life. I wanted to pour into people's lives the way that my life had been poured into. And so I decided to go into education, into teaching. I wanted to be a teacher and a coach. It wasn't going to be a business teacher, so I went into English because I like to talk a lot. And so as I approached my last year of college, all my friends were starting to fill out resumes and starting to send them out. The people that I went into education with were sending their resumes out to all the different school districts. And my dad asked me, he said, Jeremy, have you started to send your resume out? And I said, what's that? He said, Jeremy, you need to, you need to create a resume. You need to send it out to people. And I said, well, okay, well, I'll get there. One of my former coaches called me, a baseball coach, and he said, Jeremy, you want to coach with me this summer? So I became the assistant legion coach for the baseball team in Fargo. My dad started asking me, Jeremy, what are you going to do next year? And I said, I don't know, Dad, but I'm coaching baseball now. He said, Jeremy, you need a plan. You need to know what comes next. And I said, well, I don't know what comes next, but I know I'm coaching baseball now. And so my dad started to get really frustrated. And so my dad reframed the question, thinking that he could get in the side door, and he said, Jeremy, what do you see yourself doing in 10 years? And I said, I don't know, Dad, but I'll be having a blast. He said, what, did that, what does that look like? And I said, "Woo!" That didn't help. <laughs> My dad was scared to death. And the reason he was so scared is I was the youngest child and he was scared that he would have his son on his front doorstep. And they were liking being empty nesters quite a bit. 
My dad and I had different personalities, but more than different personalities, my dad and I were products of a different generation. My dad was born in 1940. In my dad's generation, growing up as a child of the 40s and 50s, there was a process, there was an order to life. My dad went to grade school, junior high, high school, did his year in the service, went to college, met a girl, got married, went to seminary, and became a pastor. Boom, 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 boom. There was an order, there was a process. It wasn't something that you questioned. And for me... In my generation, born 37 years after him, life has changed quite a bit. Leonard Sweet, in his book, Aqua Church, he defines this new era or this new generation. And again, this is a wide brushstroke. But Leonard Sweet says, if the modern era, modernity, if modernity was a rage for order, regulation, stability, singularity, and fixity, the postmodern era is a rage for chaos uncertainty, otherness, openness, multiplicity and change. Post, I love this. Postmodern surfaces are not landscapes, but wavescapes with the waters always changing and the surfaces never the same. The sea knows no boundaries. See, my dad's generation, the generation that came before me, even my brother who was born in 1970, he was a product of a whole different culture, a whole different mode of thinking. There was regularity there. There was stability there. There was order there. And this new generation of people that are, are coming into their adulthood, they buck against that idea. We want openness. We want a little chaos. We want room. We want gaps that exist where we can find ourselves, where we can make our own meaning. And you see, the culture has, has shown that that is happening. Take a look at a few stats I have for you. The average age of marriage in the United States in 1960 for women was 20.3 years of age. Average age. For men, it was 22.8 years of age. 2007, and the numbers have increased in the last three years. 2007, the average age for women is 25.6. The average age for men was 27.5. Five years later, people on average are getting married. I got married at 30 years old, and I didn't think I got married too soon at all. What would we say to somebody today if they were getting married at 20 years old? We'd say, what's the rush? Why are you hurrying? Slow down. You have the rest of your life to do that, but get your stuff in order. We have a culture, we have a generation of people who they're going through college and graduating college and or, or high school and or college and they're taking a period of years and they're doing what? They're going off into the world to what? They're going to find themselves. A guy that I graduated college with, his name was Mike, Mark Wisebro. He graduated top in our class at the college I went to. He was a pre-med major. Right after graduation, he was accepted into every med school he applied to. You know where he went? He went to Big Sky, Montana and was a ski bum for two years because he wanted to find himself. 
His goal his first year out of college was to ski over 100 days that season. He worked as a short order cook in a bar and grill to make just enough money so that he could ski for two years. I was a youth director before I went off to seminary and one of my students, his name was Petter Eriksmoen. Petter was a genius of a kid. He was also an amazingly gifted athlete. He played music at our wedding. He was a great musician as well. And I was certain when Petter was a ninth grader that when he graduated from college, he'd either be a politician, he'd be a philosophy teacher, professor at a college, or else he'd be a professional musician. Just this past spring, Petter called me and he said, Jer, which is what people from my hometown call me. He said, Jer, I figured out what I'm doing after college. I said, Petter, what are you going to do? He said, well, I met a guy at school whose parents have a farm, and I think I'm just going to go farm for a while. Petter spent $45,000 on a college education, and he's going off to farm. I said, Petter, what are you going to do that for? He said, Jeremy, I want to go find myself. I need to go make meaning of my life. I need to go figure out who I am as a person. Not only are people getting married later, but they're having kids later. Second stat. Average age of a first-time mother in 1970 was 21.4 years old. In 2006, it was 25 years old. What would we say to a young woman who at 21 years old wants to have a baby today? We'd say, hold up, wait. 33 years old, we're having our first child, and nobody thinks that that's late. We're right on cue. People are getting married later. People are having children later, if at all. We have hordes of people that are walking out of institutions of schooling, of technical school, and they're going out into the world trying to figure out who they are as people. They're trying to find out who they, how they've been gifted, what their purpose is, and they're going off to distant countries to teach English. They're going off and they're traveling the world. They're going off to a farm to work for a couple years just to get their hands dirty. And so oftentimes as a culture, as these people go off to find meaning, we say, good luck, we'll see you later, catch you on the flip side. And as a church, we've done the same exact thing. The church does really well children's ministry. The church does really well junior high and senior high ministry. As a church, we minister really well to, to young families. We minister really well to seniors in our churches. But what on earth as a church do we have for people who are unmarried adults or married adults without children? We have absolutely no area for them to get plugged into. And we say, good luck. Go out and find your meaning. But folks, they're going to find their meaning and they're going to find it in other ways. They're going to find it in other ways and for certain, most of them will not come back to the church. We go out in life and we try to find ourselves. That's what I did. I was 24 years old. I was 24 years old and I've shared this story before and I will share it again and again and again and again because it's something that is so real to me. I was 24 years old. I looked to find meaning and purpose in so many different areas of life. I grew up in a great family, a family that loved me, that taught me the basics of faith, that gave me, gave me every, every way for 
success in this world and I went out to try to find meaning and at 24 years old, I'll never forget sitting in my bed, staring at the ceiling and thinking that life has got to be better than this. If this is the best that life has to offer, I want nothing to do with it because I felt empty. I felt lonely. I felt like I had absolutely no purpose in this world and I thought that somebody had played a cruel joke on me. I knew there had to be something else. There had to be more than life, more to life than what I was experiencing. Because what I was experiencing was loneliness and emptiness. You ever have a time in your life where you feel like there's really nothing significant to what you do at all? You feel like you wake up, you go to work, you get done, you go to bed and you just go through the same cycle day after day? John Mayer, a popular musician, been around for a while, don't agree with all of his lifestyle behaviors, but John Mayer, again and again in his music, writes about the monotony, the meaningless of life. In one of his early albums, one of his albums that launched him into the limelight, on an album called Room for Squares, John Mayer has a song called Why Georgia? Such a powerful verse. I rent a room and fill the spaces with wooden places to make it feel like home. But all I feel is alone. It might be a quarter-life crisis or just the stirring in my soul. John Mayer says, I have a room. I have a place to lay my head. And I fill it full of stuff that I think is going to make it feel like home to me. I feel it full of things that I think it's going to bring meaning to me as a person. But when I lay down at night and I see what's lining the walls of my room, all I feel is alone. I think it's a quarter-life crisis. Our culture talks so often about the midlife crisis that we go through. This point that we get to in the middle of our life where we realize that hey, we're, we're halfway done. We better hurry up and get living now. But the greater tragedy that's happening in America today is this quarter-life crisis. The fact that we have young adults that are pouring out into our world that have no clue what their meaning and purpose is in life. The quarter-life crisis is that I have so many gifts and abilities, but I have no clue what I'm called to do with my life. Just a couple weeks ago, as I was preparing this message, my wife and I, we do a devotion each night. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think God works in happenstance. But as I'm putting this message together, as I'm praying about this message, three out of five nights that week, we find ourselves reading out of the book of Ecclesiastes. If any of you have read from the book of Ecclesiastes, you know it's a book that isn't filled with a lot of hope. Written by King Solomon looking back on his life looking back on all the things that he did, all the stuff that he accumulated in life, and he finds himself asking why. He finds himself writing about his pursuits in life. From Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 and 8 on the screen, but I'm just going to read the first eight verses. See if you can identify with this at all. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. 
What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth, earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the seas. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. You ever have that feeling in your life where you hear and you, and, and, and you look at what your life has become and you think it's all meaningless. It means nothing. If I were to be gone tomorrow, what do I have to show for what I've done in this world? Everything is meaningless, King Solomon says. Ecclesiastes over and over and over says meaningless. It's all meaningless. It means nothing. It has no relevance to what my eternal purpose is in this world. And we find ourselves getting to a place in our lives where we hit a roadblock. We hit a dead end. And we think, God, there's got to be something more to life than, than this. God, I have to be called to something greater than this. My life has to be worth more than this. I have to have some sort of significance in this world. And so often we find ourselves feeling so utterly insignificant. The world has told us that we're insignificant. I was 24 years old, no clue what I was going to do with my life. Decided I'd be a youth director at the church so I could screw some kids up along the way. No. No, I'm joking. I wanted to work with kids. I had a youth director that meant so much to me who happens to be dying of cancer right now. And I thought, what was it about John? What was it about John that made me feel so valuable? John's position, John Kohler's position at the church was changing and there was a spot that opened up. And I thought, just maybe, just maybe. Applied for the job, it was a church I grew up at and I was given the job as a youth director. Church very similar to Hope, a lot of stuff going on. So I started doing youth ministry and there was still that gnawing, still that... Uh, that sense that there was something more that I was being called to, something bigger than youth ministry. I'll never forget this conversation. I was walking down the hallway after a staff meeting one day and a woman who was on staff who happened to also be one of my Sunday school teachers, God bless her soul, <laughs> stopped me in the hallway and she started asking me about the friends I grew up with, the friends that still lived in my hometown. She said, what about... Nate, where does Nate go to church? I said, Joella, Nate doesn't go to church. She said, what about Colin? Where does Colin go to church? I said, well, Colin doesn't go to church. She said, what about Dane? Where does Dane go to church? I said, Joella, Dane doesn't go to church. And she looked at me and she said, Jeremy, what's wrong with your friends? Without missing a beat, I looked at her and I said, Joella, there's absolutely nothing wrong with my friends. There's everything wrong with the church. See, the church has forgotten them. The church has said that they're meaningless. 
And I'm not talking about that church. I'm not talking about the four walls of that building, but I'm talking about the church as a whole where we somehow communicate to people that if you have a family, if you have a spouse and children, then, hey, we'll welcome you and we'll, we'll minister to you. But if you don't fit into the paradigm of what we think a family is, well, just good luck. And, and we'll give stuff to you, but we're really not going to do ministry with you. That's what I love about City Branch. It's what I love about this church. It's what I love about what you guys are called to, because you get it. Joellen says, what's wrong with your friends? I said, nothing, but there's everything wrong with the church. And there started a passion in me. There started this flame that was lit inside my soul that I just, it keeps me up at night. And I started thinking, what would happen? What would happen if we recreate ourselves and target the people that are in that quarter-life crisis? You see, because my friends, they believed in God. Statistics will show that the majority of people in the United States believe in God. Percentage of young adults done by Pew Forum, this, this group that goes out and does research, percentage of young adults 18 to 35 years old who believe in God, 71% would check the box, yes, I believe there is a God. Not only do they believe in God, but they also believe that prayer works. 45% of them, almost half of the young adults out there, pray daily. I wonder how many of us pray daily. They believe in God. They pray daily. They have a prayer life. But the striking statistic is how many of them find a church that they feel that they can plug into. 33%. One in three young adults in our culture think that there is a place that they can go and be in ministry with other people. That there is a place where they can go to find significance, where they can go and find meaning, where they can go and find answers, because we're all looking for meaning. It's a question that's essential to each and every single one of us. But you see, as a church, the, the modern era church has been answering the questions that the young adults don't have. The first level questions for young adults are different than who is Jesus and why did he die. The first level question for the postmodern person is, does this make a difference in my life? Is the, what, what difference is this going to make in how I live day to day? How does Christianity stack up? I know there are many religions out there, but what's so special about Christianity? Share with me. It's, it, it's not coming up in full frontal opposition, but it's saying, share with me. Help me make sense of this. Do I need to go to church to believe in God? I see a world that's hurting and broken and the church isn't doing anything about it. So why do I want to be part of a church that doesn't care about the world? They want to know. They want to know what is in it. What is, what is in it that makes it so special? What meaning is there? And with all due respect, they ask the question, and it's not in an irreverent way, it's not in a disrespectful way, but they ask the question, so what? Jesus died for my sins, so what? Jesus rose from the dead, so what? 
And they're asking it from a position of, I have no meaning in life. Share with me what difference this makes in my life. Share with me why this is going to radically transform my life. Share with me why you show up each Sunday. Share with me why you go out and serve with people. But share with me what on earth this is all for. We have people that don't know that they've been created in the very image, in the very likeness of the God who created the heavens and the earth. They'd have no clue that God created them and that God knows them by name. That God has a place for them. That God finds value in them. That God would go to the cross for them. They have no clue the message of the cross. So many of us have no clue about the power that happened in Jesus Christ when He died and rose from the dead. John 4, the scripture verse that was read today, it's one of my favorite scriptures. Jesus is walking, He approaches a well that's called Jacob's Well. It's the middle of the day and he finds a woman there. The only reason, the only reason that you would be at the well at the middle of the day is because you had something to hide. No one would go to the well at the middle of the day because it was too hot. You would go at the beginning or the end of the day, but she was there at the middle, so Jesus knew. And being fully God, Jesus also knew her past. Jesus knew that this woman had sought meaning and purpose in the arms of other men. She had been married four to- five times and was currently living with a man who wasn't her husband. Jesus is a Jewish man. This woman is a Samaritan woman. And in Jesus' time, those two groups did not mix. Not only was she a Samaritan and he was a Jew, he was a man and she was a woman. There's two things going against that exchange. Jesus approaches the well. He sees the woman sitting there and Jesus approaches her and says, Woman, could you give me something to drink? She's astonished. She has no clue why a Jewish man would have the audacity or the the boldness to associate with someone like her. And she said, If you only knew who I am, you you wouldn't dare ask me for a drink. And Jesus says, I know. But he answers differently than she expects him to. Jesus said, if you knew the gift that stood before you now, if you truly knew who I am, I wouldn't ask you for a drink, but you would ask me for something to drink. Because what I have to offer, what I have come to give you is far greater than this world can give you. Jesus replies to her, anyone who drinks this water, the water from the well, anyone who drinks this water will become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. It'll become this spring, and the Greek word there is a present tense verb, which means continual action. It does not cease. That this spring of water within them will come forth again and again and again, and there's nothing in this world that can stop the water from within their soul from giving them life. 
Jesus says, I will give you water that will make you never thirsty again. I will give you meaning. I will give you purpose. I will give you significance. I will give you value. I will give you a name. I will give you a reputation. I will give you an identity that this world, no matter your past, present, or future circumstances, can ever touch. And it's the message that rings true today. The gospel has not changed. Cultures change. The gospel has not changed. That Jesus says to each and every single one of us, do you know how great my love for you is? Do you know how great the love of Jesus Christ is for you? That Jesus created you in his very image, in his very likeness. And I know that each one of us comes here this morning with our own insecurities, with our own baggage. We're all carrying our own backpack full of junk and we bring it to church with us we bring it in our lives and we say this is weighing me down so much and it's stripping me of who I am and I don't even know who I am and God says I have called you by name and your name is beloved your name is so valuable that I would give my life for you Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 So God created them, male and female. He created them in His image, in His own likeness. Do you know that you bear the very likeness of the Creator of the most beautiful thing you have ever seen? In Psalm 8, the psalmist writes, I look at the grandeur of the starry hosts. I look out on the night sky and my breath is taken away. And to think, and to think that God created me a Above that, that God looks at me above that, that when God looks at me, I take his breath away. Do you know that? Do you know that when God created you, he created you on purpose for a purpose? And I know it sounds cliche, but God does not create junk. That God gifted you just the way you are on purpose for a design, and he's just, he's, he just died so you would find that. That regardless of your circumstances, you are unique and precious in the eyes of the God who came to save us. And we come here on Sunday mornings. We don't come here to worship. Worship isn't something that happens on Sunday mornings. We come to praise on Sunday morning. We lift our praise to a God who created us. Our lives are lives of worship from a God who gave us gifts and abilities. And when we use those gifts and abilities in the response of a loving God, that is worship of the Lord who created us. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how beautiful you are in God's eyes? Do you know how much value, how much meaning, how much purpose that you have? That you do what you do by design, for a plan, for a vision of what God created this world to be. John preached on it last weekend, but it's just beautiful. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about it. Paul says the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we've been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share that spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. The foot says I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand that does not make it any less a part of the body. 
And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If the whole body were an ear, how would you smell? But our bodies have many parts. I love this. Listen to this. But our bodies have many parts. God has put each part just where he wants it. You are not an accident. You are not a happenstance. You are a member of the body that God created for a purpose. And there is no accident. And you're called to live in such a way that that you may proclaim God's good news through your life. That you might bring light into other people's lives so they may know how much God loves them. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Louis Giglio. He's a speaker, he's a pastor. He also works with a lot of musicians. Chris Tomlin works with Louis Giglio. Matt Redman works with Louis Giglio. Matt Redman and Louis Giglio were at Abbey Road Studios in London, England. They were recording a new album. It's the studio that the Beatles made famous. There's three studios at Abbey Road Studios. Studio number three is the smallest studio. That's where Matt Redman and Louis Giglio were. Studio number two is a little bit bigger. Paul McCartney was there at that time recording a new album. And studio number one is the studio. It's the studio where all the Beatles' number one hits were recorded. That's why there was an album a couple years ago titled One. Studio number one was under lock and key because, you see, the movie Troy had just been filmed. It had been completed, but it was void of a soundtrack. And so in studio number one, they were scoring the movie to the soundtrack Troy, And so it was under lock and key so nobody would find out what happened in the movie. Well, Louis Giglio was absolutely mesmerized and and fascinated by that studio and he wanted to get a glimpse. He wanted to get a glimpse because he was a Beatles fan and he wanted to hear and see what the studio was all about. So for a week he begged and pleaded with the executives at Abbey Road Studios and after a week they finally relented. He convinced them that he worked with a lot of musicians and he'd like to get an adequate tour of the whole facility. And so they gave him a tour and they started out with studio number three and that was cool, he'd been there before. Then they moved to studio number two, he got to meet Paul McCartney, he was, thought that was pretty cool. And then he went to studio number one, the studio. They opened up the doors to the studio number one and he said it was spectacular, it was amazing. Uh, two stories, huge studio. But he says what was more spectacular about than the studio what w- was what was happening inside. He said, do you know how they score the soundtrack to a movie? He said on one wall of the studio was a huge screen, bigger than a movie screen. And on the screen, the movie, of Troy, the movie Troy was playing out And then there was a composer sitting at a desk with all his materials he needed to write music. 
and next to him was a full orchestra. And as the movie played out, the composer was moved to write music. God has written a story. God has written a story and has invited you into the story and has created you with gifts and abilities. And as we use our gifts and abilities as the story of God plays out, we provide the soundtrack to the story of God. Just one small piece, but a piece that can transform the lives of people around you. What's God been calling you to? What greater things have, has God put on your heart to give you life, to give you meaning, to give you purpose, to give you f- a future with hope? Let's pray.